welcome to Spine and Body Podcast. This podcast's stated goals are to change how the world treats musculoskeletal pain, to create experts in the treatment of neck, back, and shoulder pain, and to advance the world's understanding of this pain, to inspire researchers, thinkers, and innovators, to empower patients and embolden caretakers. Follow us on this journey and let's learn and grow together. This podcast is brought to you by the Body Guitar Clinic because your body is a finely tuned instrument. Like all finely tuned instruments, it must be properly cared for in order to play the beautiful music it was intended to play. Care for your body and use it correctly, and it will play music that is unique to you, your life song. This is Sean Wheeler, MD, and let's get your body in tune. Welcome to Spine and Body Podcast. This is episode six, and this is Dr. Sean Wheeler. I again am amazed at the uh, people that are reaching out and thanking me for the podcast and my explanations of, of how things how things or at least how I see things. I very much appreciate that. Of all the people that I've had reach out, I still have not had a single person uh, suggest a, a new show topic to me. I think that's because I've uh, barely scratched the surface. Uh, we do have some some guests coming up. Uh, over the next couple weeks, but uh, I'm, I'm again very interested in, in hearing what people want me to talk about. I started thinking about the different topics that, that I could personally speak on uh, because I, I really want to spread those out and kind of use them as necessary on times when I can't find a guest. But we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll just keep plugging along here. I know that my initial plan was to have 25 episodes in a season and then and then uh, take a break and, and then do another 25 episodes next next year. Um, but everything's in flux uh, because of the because of the response that we've had. So um, today is actually about disc bulges. Um, some of it is again, again going to get technical. Uh, I've been negative these last uh, few episodes. I'm going to try not to be as much this time. We're going to just going to talk about what we do and why we do it. There'll be a little bit in there about three epidurals and, and a little bit of the algorithm again. I think we need to continue to hammer on the algorithm because it does need to change. Uh, but um, no, this is uh, this should be pretty fun. We'll, we'll see where this goes. So, so first of all, what is a disc and what is a disc bulge? So um, in the uh, show notes, I'm going to have some pictures of a, a vertebral body. The one that you're looking at is probably a thoracic uh, vertebrae, but it doesn't really matter. The, the spine uh, body is the, is the bony part, which is in the picture that I show, it's, it's at the bottom of the screen. And that is uh, the front, right? So it's the front where each vertebrae sits on top of another. Towards the back, that circle that you see is the neural art, or excuse me, is where the spinal canal runs. And then the bone around that is called a neural arch. There are spinous processes that stick straight out the back, transverse processes that stick out the side. And then on that particular picture, you can't see the facets that we've talked about. But the spinal cord runs right down the middle. Now, a disc is in between. So if I were to take a ver one vertebrae on top of another, as you'll see in the, in the picture of the spine right below it, one vertebrae on top of another, the, the cushion between the two is what's called a, it's what's called a disc. 
And then we've got some pictures of the disc. And what you got to realize is that there, there are two real parts. I mean, you know, people will talk about the end plate, the vent, uh, vertebral end plate as part of it. And um, there's, there's vessels that come through the end plate. There's ways that nutrients get into the disc through the end plate. But for the most part, it's, it's not, it's meant kind of as a, as we say, an end plate. And then inside that, there's, there's uh, two parts to the disc. One is called the nucleus polyposis, which is the jelly in the center. And then the other is the annulus fibrosis. And, and the annulus fibrosis, I like to think of almost like a radial tire where you've got uh, fibers going in different directions, creating uh, stability through there. On the picture, you'll see that there's certain lamina. And, and what that lamina does is create layers of stability through that area. Uh, I like to think of this like um, the the heel or the cushion of a shoe, the heel cushion of a shoe, especially the newer ones that have the the air, like the Nike Air, but uh, there's all kinds of uh, things now basically used as cushion. The shoe ones actually can be used also as kind of get, like when you hit the ground and your foot slides and it kind of catches you. Uh, our discs are not necessarily made that way. You know, our, our discs are made uh, where... They're really just for cushion, compression, one on the other. And if you think about it, as it hits the ground, that, that jelly donut, or as it, as it compresses, that jelly donut expands, and then the lamina keeps it from expanding, and it creates a little bit of cushion and then dissipation of that energy. So the question is, and you'll see this kind of in the next uh, two pictures, is there, there's a disc bulge right right there, and then, and then right after that, there's an annular tear. And you say, okay, well, what happens here? Well, we've always thought that the disc just breaks down, right? A disc will break down. That never really sat all that well with me because I never really felt like uh, we should get this kind of damage just because, you know, a, discs break, a disc breaks down. I, I always, one of the things I always said was, uh, you know, the, the back, the, the posterior of the disc, or excuse me, the anterior of the disc has a very thick wall. And then the, the um, posterior where the, where the spinal cord is, there's a very thin wall between the disc and that spinal cord. And I always said, I'm going to ask God why, why that is. And, and I've kind of gotten away from that in the last oh, eight or nine years because I started trying to figure it out. I, I, I didn't like the fact that, that people would say, well, discs just break down. And there's some, there's some truth to it because, you know, ligaments just break down. Uh, joints uh, somewhat just break down, I, I guess. But, you know, I, I'm sitting here with 1.5 glasses on because when I try to read something, my lens in my eye doesn't bend the way it used to. And it's probably broken down a little bit. But the, the, we'll see that with ligaments. I don't move the same way I used to. And and I'm pretty sure, a matter of fact, I know that the labrum in my shoulder would tear if I, if I was too active, if I was a as active with my shoulder as I am as I was when I was younger, right? So we know that there's some breakdown to these tissues, but it doesn't explain the breakdown of disc bulges and it doesn't explain why it's much more common at age 35. So I remember I was, I was kind of an aha moment for me when I was, I was driving home, this was about 2008, and I'd been thinking about it and I'd read, I'd, I don't know when I'd read it, but I'd read how the disc is somewhat avascular, uh, meaning not much blood flow to the disc. I had just previously read something about the, they get much more avascular in people with diabetes or smokers and people over the age of, age of 35. And looking back, it, it should have come to me quicker. I mean, I, so I was driving home. It was after a very long day. It was kind of a winter. 
and I'm going down this two lane road and I'm getting hypnotized by the, by the yellow stripes in the, in the road in front of me. And I remember I almost pulled off the road because it was one of those deals where I went, well, well, of course. And, and since then it, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, but I still, I don't see anybody really discussing this. And the fact is, is that if the, if the disc is avascular, if it's not supposed to have much blood flow, well, then it's not really set up for motion, right? Motion causes heat. You bend a coat hanger, it heats up. You unscrew a bolt, it heats up. Okay. If you sit up straight and you say, I'm not moving my shoulders at all. I'm not moving my pelvis at all. The only thing I'm going to move is my low back. Well, good luck, right? The muscles in your low back don't move you. They hold you steady when, when everything, when the shoulders move and when the pelvis moves. We've talked about this in several podcasts. Okay. So motion causes heat. Every joint in your body that's supposed to move has really good lubrication, right? And what that lubrication does is not only allow you to move easier, but it also keeps the joint from heating up. The joints also have pretty good blood flow. Not great, but pretty good blood flow. And that blood flow takes away any extra heat, okay? So what about your discs? Your lumbar discs have no lubrication. Matter of fact, I don't think any of the discs have, I don't see how any of the discs could have any lubrication. So let's change that. Your discs have no lubrication, okay? By age 35, you have no blood flow. And some people earlier, because they uh, smoke or, or have diabetes, as we said above. So um, I like to say that either God screwed this up, and I kind of scooch to the side so I don't get struck by lightning, or we're supposed to be stable, right? And and I, and I can tell you it's the second. We're, we're supposed to be stable. What we'll see, and, and we see this all the time, when I, when I get a cross-section or a, you know, when we do an MRI of the lumbar spine and we do, or the neck or the thoracic spine, when we do bread slices as you go down the, down the spine, those are called axial views. And when we do an axial view of the spine, we'll see uh, what one would call a Kansas City strip. Right, if this was a cow, it'd be a Kansas City strip, and then uh, filet mignon, and and then we see kind of the the T bone that's that's uh, the transverse processes of the spine, and then inside of that we'll see a we'll see a um, a ligament which I call posterior ligament, but it's formally known as a ligamentum flavum. So what we'll see is the Kansas City strip will start looking more and more marbled, and that's a sign of fibrosis. Right, these are these are what we call red muscles. So they get energy by having increased blood flow. And as that blood flow decreases, we see more fibrosis or marbling, if it's a, if it's a, a steak. We see darkening or thick, you know, good tissue in the filet mignon, which is our psoas, or ili and sometimes iliopsoas. And then we'll see thickening of that, po of that ligamentum flavum. And, and it's just at the level of the disc, but, but it's this ligamentum flavum thickening, trying to stabilize the spine. And then we'll see arthritis in the facets. We'll see it start seeing those type of things. The other thing is, is we'll, especially if it's been there for a while, we'll see disc degeneration and people say, oh, disc degeneration, that's your, pro that's your problem. No, it's not. Disc degeneration causes pain in, in almost nobody. Um, and, and research has shown this. If you go and look up disc degenerations and causes for pain, you'll see decades of, of information saying that that's, that was the case. And then in the last 10, you'll see study after study saying we, we can't prove that. And matter of fact, I, I think hopefully we're to the point where people are stopped saying that that causes pain. 
But what's happening is, is the, the disc is breaking down. We don't have enough blood flow and the disc breaks down. And the first thing we start to get is tears throughout this annulus fibrosis, little tears everywhere, which looks like disc degeneration. And then sometimes those tears coalesce together and create uh, an annular tear, right? Where they, and that's what you see on that picture is it's just leaked towards the edge and then that stuff from the center is irritating to the, to the nerve. Okay, so, so what does that mean? The nucleus, fibro nucleus polyposis, which is in the center, is made up of a compound called phospholipase A2. And this is kind of how I explain it to people. Sometimes that stuff, that uh, nucleus polyposis, bulges out, right, and causes a disc bulge that could potentially impinge the nerve, uh, put significant pressure on the nerve. But a lot of times, it, it actually just irritates it. And an annular tear can irritate it. Uh, it's really, with annular tears, sometimes we'll even see people say, I only have pain when I'm in these positions, or when I do this, or, or when I lay this way, or, you know, and, and what's happening is, is that instead of the phospholipase A2 or the nucleus polyposis going to the nerve, the nerve is coming to it sometimes. It doesn't always work that way, but I like to imagine it, you know, working that way. At least helps me understand as I'm going through a, a physical exam. So the phospholipase A2 is found, it's not exactly the same, but it's found in other, other parts of, of nature in, um, you know, snake bites, the venom from snake bites and, and insect stings and things like that, where it's known as an irritant and, and it irritates the nerves. Sometimes it'll break the, the, um, nucleus excuse me, the annulus fibrosis will break down more and the nucleus polyposis, which is the center disc part, uh, jelly donut part, will bulge all the way out and press, press on the, on the nerve. And the way you can tell the difference is, is that um, when, a, when a nerve is irritated, we get some combination or all of numbness, weakness, and pain. When the disc is bulged, we get numbness, weakness, pain, and atrophy. So what is atrophy? Well, it's really a muscle shriveling up, okay? So a muscle shriveling up can happen over a long period of time. I mean, I'm less active than I've been, so I'm not as, I don't have as much muscle hypertrophy as I did when I was in my 20s. Uh, would you call that atrophy? Uh, yeah, you would. But what if suddenly I start having pain in my leg and over a period of five days, I get rapid shrinking of the muscle? Well, that's, that's sometimes a disc bulge, right? And that's the thing is you see this rapid shrinking of the muscle because there's a symbiotic relationship between the muscle and the nerve. And if the nerve is damaged or compressed, we'll see uh, more rapid atrophy than one would expect. So anyway, that's, that's, that's kind of the way it goes. So how do we get a disc bulge? Well, a lot of times it's because of this instability around the spine. The disc starts to break down. We get the tears. Sometimes it's not though. Sometimes it's, it's a, it's an injury. It's a traumatic event. It's a fall. It's a, you know, person, uh, bends over, twists and then sneezes. Or, you know, I mean, we've seen that sometimes or car accident or, you know, uh, lifting something way too heavy. I don't know why, uh, if I'm backing a pickup truck to a trailer, and I'm about three, four inches off, I always think to myself, sure, I can lift the trailer and move it those three inches. Uh, at some point, I'm going to stop being such an idiot and, and just get back in the truck and move the, uh, move the hitch just a little bit closer. But, um, you know, uh, that's one of, part of being a man, I guess, we're, we're sometimes stupid. Uh, not, and, sometimes, and sometimes we're smart, and what we try to do is <laughs> 
try to create that balance low, more and more over our life to the point where uh, we're more smart than stupid. Um, but that's a story for another day. Okay, so what happens is, is that either the first one started weak with weakness, or once we get pain, we develop weakness. Okay, so when a person gets a disc bulge, let's say they have a traumatic event and they get a disc bulge, well, they're gonna, their body is going to protect them from that pain. And they're going to do it by tightening all kinds of muscles. Um, they're going to get it. They're going to do it by basically tightening everything up. They're going to start breath holding like crazy. And they, they do this super, super stabilization by breath holding, which creates weakness in the muscles that are supposed to be doing the job as they're not, they're not strong enough to do the type of stability that we need. So our body goes into this total compensation trying to protect itself. And with that, that leads to decrease blood flow in these small muscles uh, that are supposed to be doing the job if it lasts for more than a, a couple of weeks. So we tell people, we say, uh, either you were really weak that and that led to this disc bulge, or you got a disc bulge and then, and you ended up weak. It doesn't really matter. In both cases, you're weak. And when we treat this disc bulge, we then have to go back and, and treat those symptoms or else this just continues to come back over and over. Okay, so uh, the next thing you'll hear is you'll hear people talk about disc bulge or disc herniation. It doesn't really matter. I, I will tell you, is the nerve irritated or is the nerve compressed or is there nothing there at all, right? I mean, it's also possible that, that there's nothing. And we'll talk, that, talk about that in a second. But uh, I will tell you that at one point, and I don't know how true this is anymore, but at one point a disc bulge and a disc herniation meant exactly the opposite based on whether you're on the East Coast or West Coast. You know, one one side would be saying herniation, and the other one side would be calling it a bulge. And then you'd go to the other coast, and they'd call a bulge a herniation. Or I think I just said that backwards, but you, but you know what I mean. I will tell you, disc bulges aren't always uh, the problem, right? So there was this study in 1994 by Jensen et al. who uh, in, in New England Journal of Medicine, and uh, they took 98 people with no back pain of all ages, and 52 percent of them had disc bulges. 52% and 38% had one at more than one level. Now there is a little bit of breakdown in that. Um, so a disc bulge of any size, right? But if you start talking about protrusion, which according to them was, you know, a protrusion is when it's big enough and, and people will say that the, the width is more than the length or the, you know, it sticks out less than it is wide. Okay. That's, that's usually the definition, 27%. And then extrusion where it, it, the out is more than the width. Uh, there was 1% of those. Now remember, they only, did, they only did 98 people. But so there was basically one person who had a disc extrusion. And you'll hear people say, well, you know, they're talking about small disc bulges. No, they're not really. 27%, 27 had, a, had a pretty big disc bulge. And 1% had something we would call an extrusion. Uh, so, and these are people with no pain. Uh, so when I say that that's you know it can cause numbness, weakness, pain, or numbness, weakness, pain, and atrophy, uh, the third possibility is that it causes nothing. So just realize that if you go and decide, hey, I, I have to follow the algorithm, and the algorithm says, uh, do I have any pain down my leg? Do do I have anything on the MRI? And basically, I get these notes from the insurance companies where they'll say, um, person has a positive. MRI and pain down their leg, you must start with an epidural. And I get, this is when I'm going negative, right? This is when I get pissed. And the reason is, is because 
my physical exam is either going to show me whether this is a disc bulge or not, whether the disc bulge is true or not. I can't have an insurance company who is not evaluating the patient, making medical decisions. If I go through, and we talked about this last time, if I go through and I figure out that there's another cause of, of pain down the leg, right? And what are the other causes? Uh, piriformis syndrome, which can be either, either SI pain or uh, hip joint pain. Uh, we could have SI pain itself, which can cause pain to the back of the leg. Uh, I could have femoral nerve entrapment. I could have peripheral neuropathy. I could have peripheral entrapment. I could have um, a vascular issue, right? Where a person gets pain down the leg every time they walk. A person says to me, I have pain down the leg and I put it in the initial notes and then that there's noted an, on the MRI that they have a disc bulge and the insurance company tries to tell me that I have to do an epidural first. I do my exam looking for the 40, excuse me, for the 52% that have a disc bulge and have, and have no pain. I mean, that's my, that's, that's the way I do it is I look for everything except that disc bulge and I have to. I tell I tell uh, residents when they first start examining a, a person's chest that every patient that they listen to their chest with a, with a stethoscope has pneumonia until they prove otherwise. Well, it's the opposite with back pain. I assume that every person has a disc bulge that has nothing to do with their pain as I go through their exam. And I go about trying to prove it. There are disc bulges in 52% of people with no pain, which is equal to saying that there are disc bulges in people with pain elsewhere 52% of the time. Now, just because that is true doesn't mean that disc bulges don't cause pain, right? So there are so many times when I go, I will go through the exam and after I've gone through the exam, I, I don't even have an MRI in front of me and I will turn to the person who's studying with me or learning from me and I will say, it's greater than 90% chance this person has a disc bulge at L4-5 or L5-S1 or whatever it is. Or I'll say, I don't know whether it's lateral at L4-5 or medial at L5-S1 because, because this is affecting you know, the L5 nerve root. Okay, So I've gone through the exam and I can say that before it even happens. I can't tell you the number of times that I've said, this person has an annular tear at this level, at, you know, at this kind, and it's based on my exam. And then we go get the MRI and it is right on. Now, I'm not telling you that I'm some sort of Nostradamus. I'm telling you that my exam creates an expectation of what I expect to see on, on an MRI. I never read the MRI and then go do an exam. It screws with, with my diagnostic skills. I mean, I've it really, it actually, it really, really does. I try very hard to not do an exam or try not to read the MRI before I do the exam. I don't want to know. I love the, I love the trying to figure out. All right. So if we could go back, there's a couple, there's one other thing that I want to mention. And, and I mentioned this because it's going to come up anytime we talk about disc bulges. And I think that it's, it's valid because it's an emergency. So there is something called cauda equina syndrome. And, and as I bring up cauda equina syndrome, I also want to talk to you about conus medullaris. Okay, so your spinal cord ends somewhere around L1-2, which if you're not a physician, this is right at, or a, or a clinician, this is right at your belly button or abouts, maybe slightly below that. So there's a, there's a canal, a spinal cord with a, with a um, dural sac around it. And, 
and the nerves come off it at every level. And then you get down to the bottom and the spinal cord ends and then there's just this tail of, of nerves at the end. And we call that tail of the horse or what is Latin for cauda equina. And uh, a person can get such a large disc bulge that it, it basically gets that, that all of the nerves that are, that are after that. So all of the nerves that are at the end of the spinal cord and after are affected by this large disc bulge. And sometimes basically what they get is they get bowel and bladder changes. They get what we call saddle, saddle numbness, right? Uh, which is, or saddle paresthesia. So it's, it's any place that if you were sitting on a saddle that's numb, which includes a lot of very important things. Uh, but there's, there's other things to it. It's just that if a person were to get such a large disc bulge and suddenly have bowel and bladder changes and numbness through this saddle area, they need to go to the emergency room, right? They really need to go to the emergency room. And I don't know any sane person that would do, oh yeah, I just suddenly lost control of my bowel and I'm leaking urine constantly because the, because sometimes the bladder will, uh, overflow and then start to leak and then say, you know, I think I'm fine. I'll wait till Monday. I've not really found that. What I've had is people call up going, I just lost, I just lost uh, control of my bowel. Uh, and, and I, I didn't expect to crap myself. Right. So it's kind of one of those deals where I, I'm not going to bring it up again. I will tell you there's a difference between cauda equina and conus medullaris. So conus medullaris is actually anything where it's still spinal cord. So, so L1, 2, L, L2, 3, right. Any of those where the cord is affected. Now, there's ways that you can tell there's, uh, between the two. Um, first of all, realize that, uh, one is what's called an upper motor neuron, which means it's affecting the spinal cord or brain. And the other one is lower motor neuron. So in upper motor neuron, people have, uh, really exaggerated reflexes. And then in lower motor neuron, they have no reflexes at all. So that's kind of one of the big ones. But then also usually when it's caught equina, it's usually one side or the other. There's tons of pain. It takes a while for the bowel and bladder to be affected, okay? With conus medullaris, uh, what they get is they get, like I said, exaggerated reflexes. It's on both sides. There's less pain, but bowel and bladder are affected rapidly. So it's kind of one of those deals where a person should know the difference. They should be able to do an exam. And I realize this is more for clinicians than it is for patients, but they should be able to do an exam and go, oh yeah, this one's, uh, this one's a, uh, part, a spinal cord included, right? Or not. Anyway, okay, so um, I, that's the end of, of cauda equina. I'm never, I'm probably never going to bring it up again, but just realize it's always implied. Okay, so uh, we already talked about the other causes of, of leg pain. You know, when we try to differentiate a disc bulge, I'm looking for reflexes or reflex changes. Um, I'm looking for uh, weakness in certain areas. Uh, I'm looking for uh, straight leg raise. I'm trying to figure out which nerve it would go down. I'll often take my hand and, and I'll say, okay, here's where L4 nerve root goes, or here's where L2 nerve root goes or whatever it is. And I'll say, is that your pain? You know, and I'm trying to figure out whether there's, you know, um, pain from a nerve, from that nerve, from the back or not. L4, 5 is a little different. If a person gets a disc bulge at L4, 5, it, in one in 20 people, it causes just back pain. I mean, I get completely confused with L4, 5. Sometimes I'll think they have uh, L5 as, uh, excuse me, I'll think they have facet pain and SI pain and they've, tr and they've, they're the one in 19 or one in 20 people that actually have an L4, 5 disc bulge. So realize for you, for those of you ca uh, caring for people with disc bulges, L4, 5 is sometimes can be weird. Okay. So, so we've kind of gone through that. So what do we do about a disc bulge? 
Well, it depends on how, how tender they are. If a person's extraordinarily tender, uh, they have atrophy, uh, they're, they're just miserable. Uh, oftentimes I'll send them for surgery and we'll talk about surgery in a minute. But if I'm going to do an epidural, uh, I have, I have certain, certain, uh, things, certain ways that I think about it. Right. So first of all, all I'm trying to do is decrease inflammation. Uh, and I'm trying to get them from the point, I'm trying to get them from the group of people that have a disc bulge and a nerve that's irritated to the group of people that have a disc bulge and it's not irritated. I want to put them in that 52% of people that have a disc bulge and don't have pain. That's, that's really what I want to do, right? And if I can do that, then I can send them to therapy and I can say, okay, listen, let's correct all the causes that either caused this or have happened since it happened. Let's Let's, let's get away the compensations. Let's improve the strength. Let's, let's get them to cop, stop having such a good, uh, filet mignon and, and get a much better Kansas City strip. Um, making myself hungry here. Anyway, um, we want them to stop breath holding. We want, we want them to never have to have an epidural again. And I can tell you, we have zero patients that get epidurals after epidural after epidural. And, and what I mean, I don't mean that we don't do, we don't do more than one. Okay, so let's back up just briefly. So when I do a, an injection in a knee or a shoulder, let's say I get the person 30% better, 30% improved as far as inflammation goes. They feel 100% better, right? Because I've decreased the inflammation enough. When I do an epidural, if I get them almost completely uninflamed, sometimes they still hurt. And it doesn't mean that the epidural didn't work. It just means that the the amount of inflammation necessary to reach the point of pain in an epidural space is much lower than it would be in a joint. So sometimes I have to repeat joint injections. More commonly than not, I have to repeat epidurals, okay? Uh, so I repeat an epidural, that doesn't mean I'm doing three. Basically what I'm looking for is, does the person have enough pain relief that I can send them to physical therapy and start working on all the things that keeps them from having another epidural. That's all it is. So when we do an epidural, we're thinking to ourselves, let's get their inflammation down low enough that they can get through therapy without, without therapy irritating them. That's what we're doing. So when I use the word epidural, what do I mean? So remember I said that the spinal cord is surrounded by a fluid-filled sac called a dura. The dura completely surrounds the brain and spinal cord, protects it like a pickle in a pickle jar. And then the nerves come out the side. If you were to move and your spinal cord were to move inside the spinal canal, the place, the, the, the dura would move with it. Okay. The dura would move with the spinal cord. The place that the dura moves is called the epidural space. And when I put medication in there, I'm trying to fill the space around this dural sac and affect the disc, right? I'm trying to affect the disc. And I'm just trying to decrease, I'm basically trying to get steroid in the area of the phospholipase A2 to decrease the inflammation. That's it. Uh, trying to create enough of pain relief so that I can do strengthening. And, th and that's really it. And you'll hear people say, well, it's just a Band-Aid. No, it's not a Band-Aid. I'm, I'm trying to create enough pain relief that we can get through therapy. That's, that's, that's the whole point. If I go and do surgery, which I could do, but surgery fundamentally changes your back. And if it's necessary, it's necessary. It's a great thing if it's necessary. If it's not, I don't necessarily want to do it. I will say that I have some change in, in mind with that when it comes to people that get uh, minimally invasive surgery. I think that 
there's a breaking point. You know, I've, I've done two epidurals and, and I'm questioning whether they're getting better or not and questioning whether I'm doing a third one. And I'm like, you should go get a microdiscectomy or, or something to that effect because, because a, a minimally invasive surgery is not going to have as much effect as this continued pain for month after month after month. So sometimes I'll push people towards the minimally invasive surgery, but, um, you know, sometimes people need a fusion. And while I'm, while I think it fundamentally changes their back forever, sometimes that's what they need. And if you've been through everything, if we've really, really worked on your diagnosis, and and we know what it is, not not we did, you know, we we followed what the MRI said, and never really did an exam, and we don't know what it is, but we know you have a disc bulge. Don't don't get a fusion, right? You need a really good exam, and you need a really good diagnos diagnostician deciding that we've tried everything and your best option is to get a fusion because some people need fusions and, and it saves their life and it really uh, improves their life. And, and we can work like crazy after that, trying to get everything stable around it, but we can't do it when you hurt. So I think I just went off on a tangent there and I'm not finding my way back, but, but that's, that's, that's the deal. Um, okay. So uh, that's how we do an epidural. Sometimes we do more than one. Uh, we're just we're just trying to recreate uh, stability, and we're trying to we're trying trying to set ourselves up for that. I think that's enough for right now. You know, um, we can always answer more questions. Hopefully, that helps. Uh, now, I, I want to get to the second part of this, and I'm going to try to make this pretty quick. Last week, I talked a little bit on insurance companies, and kind of made it, and a little bit this week, and and tried to make it sound like, you know, they were the ones that were kind of getting us in trouble, and I'm. I'm not convinced of that. I think insurance companies, in the end, uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to provide care for an awful lot of people, and they're trying to do it in the best way possible. Uh, what we've had in the last 10 years or longer, depending on the part of the country you live in, is a changing in, in how things are done. So uh, corporatization of medicine has, has really uh, started to show itself. Uh, I, I've noticed it since Obamacare. I don't know if that has anything to do with it or not. I don't know that. I don't know. I can't make the correlation exactly. I will tell you that I'm seeing an increasing number of ads for hospitals and the things that they do. And I can tell you, uh, they're making lots of money, right? Uh, and they've, they've initially when they came in and, and corporations that took over medicine or took over hospitals and things like that, hospital systems, I don't think they're trying to do the wrong thing either. I think that when a corporation takes over, their job is to make money and they're going to figure out how to do it. Um, they need to show increasing profits every year, which does seem to be bad for medicine. I mean, we used to have, we used to have insurance companies that, that had all the money, uh, big pharma who's trying to take it away from them, away from them. And then hospitals, nurses, doctors, other providers, basically trying to get, get people better and then, um, you know, try to make a little bit of money doing it. So corporations take over and what happens is they, 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 they start saying, listen, we're going to code better. We're going to improve coding and we're going to make more money. Oh, and we're going to, we're going to use our large size to negotiate with the insurance companies for better contracts, which is great. You know, uh, the, the, the insurance companies, they, they say, what great, we're going to make a better contract with you guys, uh, not knowing that they're going to have an entire room full of people that are going to figure out ways to, um, make even more based on the contract that they have. And by then the insurance company's tied into it and they got to do it. Right. So the corporate, so they're making better money. Insurance companies are taking in the shorts a little bit. Um, uh, but that's not enough. Right. So they, they basically start, they start squeezing in and saying, listen, we need, we need to pay the nurses a little bit less. We need to, 
you know, sk- uh, skim some more off the top from the physicians and, and things like that. Uh, we need to build our own uh, facilities that these facilities can make us more. And then that works for a while. Eventually, they start putting a little more pressure on the physicians to refer to other physicians and facilities in their system so that they can get paid kind of coming and going. Uh, recently, you've seen this more push towards where corporations are saying, yeah, we need to we need to uh, really stress the things that pay better, right? And and throughout all this, what what insurance companies are forced to do is start saying, listen, we're we're starting to take this in the short. So what we're going to do is we're going to limit certain things. We're going to create m- new words that have to be said to get things paid for. We're gonna we're gonna try to make it so that physicians have to call in themselves to get things approved. We're gonna make it really really hard to get things approved. And then we're gonna start creating our own our own algorithms, our own rules as far as what we will pay for and what we won't. Um, it used to be fine because what, what physicians and hospitals would do is just write it off. But now you're dealing with corporations that are saying, listen, we can't write things off. We got to make more of this. We got to make more this year than we did last year and more next year than we did the year before. What was amazing is, is that what we're seeing from insurance companies is that they they will limit certain things based on the fact that they're getting killed by the insurance company or by the, by the corporation. And then we're finding, you know, record profits. Uh, I, I'll name one. I could name one, which I named last week that had uh, 6 billion in profits in one quarter, which was their greatest profit ever. And it all came from kind of limiting, um, limiting what they were willing to pay for, right. Or where it was able to be done and things like that. So we're getting to the point where it pays well, it, it'll pay, it'll, the corporation will figure out or has figured out that it'll, it'll keeping people sick, keep, keeping them in the hospital is the best way for them to make more money. And I'm not saying that's what's happening. I'm just saying that this, this is a slippery slope, right? And I can tell you that patients feel that way. Patients feel like the care has dropped and the, the, that they're just a, a, a spigot for which to get money. And physicians can tell, nurses can tell. I had a nurse tell me the other day, she's been uh, practicing nurse for over 20 years. And she said that all the reason she got into, into medicine, and this is why most healthcare workers get into medicine, is they it's a servant's heart. They just want, they want to take care of people. And yet they feel like instead of taking care of people, they're they're following rules, they're trying to make money for the corporation, and and they're getting significant burnout. So she said she's never felt more burnt out in her life. And I think that's I think that's where we're getting. I really do. And like I say, it's this is not the corporation's fault. Their job is to make money. It's just that when they come into something like medicine, which is supposed to be reasonably stable, you're going to reach a point where if you make people better, you're going to, if you make people, if you do preventative medicine or you do good medicine, you're going to make people less likely to come to the hospital and then you're going to make less money. And that's, that's goes against making money every year. So it's just how it works. Right. And then insurance comes back and says, okay, we're going to start cutting things. Uh, because we're getting killed by these insurance companies. And at some point, if they just continue to cut things, people are going to go, look, they're not paying for what they should pay for. We're going to demand that the government comes in and fixes this. And that's a disaster. It's a true disaster. I know there's lots of people that want single payer and government government run healthcare, but I can tell you that in America, I don't know how well that's going to work. I, I remember this talk by a neurologist from England, you know, and he was like, he's like, in England, person has a headache and we, we, 
we uh, check their uh, peripheral vision and we watch them walk and we say to them, you probably don't have a brain tumor. And the person, uh, the patient is like, oh, thank you, doctor. And then in America, he says, he goes, the same doctor. He says, he goes, I, I do a great exam. I do, th I do four times as many uh, uh, physical exam things than I need to do. Uh, they don't have, they have normal peripheral vision and they walk normal. And I look them in the eye and I say, you do not have a brain tumor. And he says, they kind of cock their head to the side. And I say, oh, let's get some more imaging, right? Because America's, Americans expect uh, definitive answers as far as that goes. So, so all of a sudden we get, we get government run healthcare in that, in that type of, and also a legalistic, you know, tort reform, tort, without tort reform, uh, the costs are going to go through the roof and there is no country that, that has socialized medicine and a large, large standing army. And I don't know, maybe England's the only one that does, but they also have the, you are probably, you probably don't have a brain tumor. Okay. Thank you. Right. So just realize I'm, I'm, I'm not all that for uh, government healthcare. So what, what I think has to be done is that insurance companies are going to be the ones that save us, right? Because I think they have to demand better outcomes and pay better for better outcomes. And I, and I don't think it has to be one of those things where you say, oh, better outcome per patient. No, I think it has to be, a, a, you know, over time and this person or this hospital gets great outcomes. And because of that, we're going to pay them better. And this person does not get good outcomes. So your, your reimbursements are going to go down. And until you figure out how to have better outcomes, we're not going to pay you as well. And I don't think it should be, it should be patient satisfaction because you take 10 people with Parkinson's and five of them are angry because of what they lost. And then the other five are grateful for what they still have. And you're going to have a completely different patient uh, satisfaction. Uh, it's, it's, it should not be patient satisfaction. It should be outcome. And I was riding to Philmont with the Boy Scouts. We, we, took, our, we took the bus or not, took, we took cars from Kansas City to Cimarron, New Mexico for this uh, Boy Scout trip at Philmont, which was fabulous, by the way. And I, the guy I rode with was a statistical analysis person for a bank. And he was telling me about all this statistical analysis they do with banks and it's extraordinary. And I started talking to him about, you know, would we be able to tell differences in care based on social, you know, I mean, taking out social economic status, taking out, you know, people that aren't, aren't uh, doing the work, you know, the rehab that they should or, or whatever, you know, not taking the medicines or whatever it is. Would we be able to uh, create kind of a, a, a statistical analysis of, of outcomes even in the face of different patient populations. And he's like, yeah, no doubt, right? Now, realize he was with banks, but he, but his, his point was that statistical analysis has gotten to the point that it's extraordinary. I will tell you that if corporations are asked, are basically you know, told, you're going to make more money when, when people have better outcomes, we'll start getting better outcomes. I think that they've organized medicine in a way to make money right now. And if they start organizing medicine in a way to improve patient outcomes uh, substantially, it'll happen. I mean, that's that's taking that's taking capital capitalism and using it for good rather than using it for um, you know getting as much money as we can. Uh, capitalism used in the right way creates it, it creates some of the biggest change that has ever happened in human history. And I I only think insurance companies can achieve this. Instead, 
right now what they got is record record out record um record profits in the midst of of people who feel like they're not getting good care and i still think they could get great profits as cuz of corporations but we just need to change that subtle way that we uh reimburse right i i i've been in practice for uh, almost 25 years almost uh, somebody who gets out of medicine and uh, last week or gets into medicine last week, graduates residency last week and goes into a large hospital will get paid way more than I do. That's, that's, that's incredible. My outcomes are going to be better. My experience is better. I'm not saying based on experience. I'm saying base it on outcomes. Stop basing it on who a person works for because they're, then they're, it, it just leads to burnout. I'm just, that's anyway, was I ranting again? <laughs> anyway. Okay. Thank you for listening in. Please, please, please give me some comments. Doctor at Dr. Sean Wheeler. Uh, Cameron, thank you for continuing to reach out. Uh, uh, he's the one person who's sending me messages on Twitter, and I very much appreciate it. Uh, ben Edwardson, who's an athletic trainer, uh, has been reaching out. I've had a couple of physical therapists that have reached out. Please, I, I need some. I need some more direction as we go forward. I got. I still got five uh, shows in the can, but but I want. I want more. So, thank you, thank you for listening to this very long episode. Uh, I probably should have done a whole separate episode on social on on corporatization of medicine, but you know, something I feel strongly about. Okay, next week then. Thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate your download and taking the time to listen please go to whatever source you normally get your podcast from and subscribe. Also, visit bodyguitar.com for show notes and to learn about our clinic. Living longer is not near as important as living better. These episodes are meant to advance the goal of living better. One of the best and hardest ways to achieve this goal is to pray for your enemies and forgive those that hurt you. Life is about relationships build them. Until next time, body guitar practitioners, performers, and tuners, get your body in tune. This is Dr. Sean Wheeler on Spine and Body Podcast, and I will see you on the next episode. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare studies, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their health providers for any such condition.